Welcome to The Memo, I'm Kanem Shepherd. This is the Extended Edition, where I sit down and have a full-on conversation with my guest of the week. And this week's guest is Jeff Wise. Jeff is a journalist, author, and co-host of the Deep Dive MHS 370 podcast. And he joined me this week to discuss a very frightening and scary situation that happened aboard Alaska Airlines. We are emergency, we are depressurized, but we do need to return back to, we have 177 passengers. I started by asking him this. Jeff, it's not every day that you're sitting on a plane, you know, consuming a beautiful glass of red wine that the stewardess gave you, and you hear a plane door open? Um, so we're talking about the 737 MAX where the door blew out? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I've, I've, I mean, there have definitely been cases in the past where due to structural fatigue, pieces of, uh, of an airline do, you know, pop off. Uh, an airliner, once it's above 10,000 feet, is a bit like a balloon. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got high pressure inside because we human beings like to have sort of sea level pressure, uh, one atmosphere. And as you go higher, it gets less and less. And so you have to pressurize the plane. So it's like a balloon. And if the plane, if the structure isn't well engineered or if it's been weakened by um, repetitive stress, then you can have a kind of rupture. What was amazing about this case is that this plane was only two months old. Incredible. And so it was, no, it's really incredible. I mean, it's just, so this is a brand new plane right out of the box. So there was a fault and, on the plane, clearly. Yeah, I mean, it was poorly engineered. It was poorly installed. Um, but definitely, yeah, not good. And you, you talk about, you know, poorly designed. This reminds me of the McDonnell Douglas DC-10. The DC-10 was a plane that got a reputation for being kind of a death trap. Yeah, it was and, known as the, the flying death trap, the flying coffin. Right. And I mean, so I think in retrospect, that was, it had an unusually high accident rate mm. uh, for various factors. But 29 like, crashes, overall, apparently. It, so not, which, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you're, you're still safer probably in a DC-10 than you are like driving in a car on American yeah. roads. But yeah, it was, it was, it was doing significantly worse than its competitors. And, and, and so you, when you think about a snake bit plane, you used to think about the DC-10 and now you think about the 737 MAX, mm. which is not good if, you know, the 737 is this, is this plane that carries like around 150 people normally operate short haul routes. Like here in the States, we'd talk about something like New York, Chicago, in, your, in you know, your neck of the woods, you might say London, Paris, that yeah. kind of thing. And um, this is a, this is, there's a huge demand for this kind yeah. of plane. Boeing, even after all the terrible press it got, still mm. has orders for more than 4,000 of these things. Airbus, you know, which has the A320, 321, 319, these, these sort of sort of similar planes, they've got like 6,000 orders. Yeah. So these, these are, these are, it's a huge industry making these kinds of, of aircraft. And if there's, and there's, they've got the market split between them. Boeing and Airbus have been kind of playing this neck and neck horse race yeah. since the seventies. And, you know, if your competitor is, you know, the A350, we just had another incident involving A350 mm. where it crashed really through no fault of its own into a plane in Tokyo. Yes. And the plane, like there's this fireball and the A350 slides out of it on fire, but it's so well built that everyone is able to escape um, practically unscathed. Um, the A3, I did a story about A350 for, for Business Week when it was going through flight testing back in 2013 mm. and entered service in 2015. And that's a plane that's flawless. 
spotless, spotless yeah, yeah. record. And there you've got the 737, which is like, you know, like you're the DC-10 of today. And, we, you know, we talk about this DC-10, the flying death trap, but also with the DC-10, it was rushed. The problem is that they really should have, well, for, I mean, somebody wrote a whole book about all the problems that are going right now. But basically, they're now kind of like a financial engineering company more than they are an there was aeronautical this, engineering there was this company. Incredible, I don't know if you watched this incredible documentary on Netflix kind of explaining the story of Boeing. Have you, have you watched that? Right. Yeah, it was incredible. I watched it the other yeah. day. Yeah, it's it, it's the same story, right? It's like they're just their 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 focus is not on building new airplanes. No. And so they basically thought that the quickest and easiest way they could compete with Airbus and their new neo uh, high efficient jets is by just kind of putting lipstick on a pig. Yeah. And taking an existing aircraft, putting on big engines. Now the engines are too big, so now it doesn't really fly right. So you've got to put in this automated system that in certain circumstances does the, does the opposite of what it really should do. Um, and people die, et cetera. Yeah. But it's, it's that problem was just part and parcel of an entire culture of faulty decision-making, faulty management, keeping, you know, getting, letting your eye get off the ball. Yeah. And this, and so the fact that now you've got like parts blowing out of a brand new plane at 16,000 feet is just another example. And there's, and there was, you know, the um, Seattle Times just had a story on Friday about how um, Boeing had been pressuring the FAA, our aviation regulator, to waive some safety rules that they're trying to get another variant of the 737 Max. You know, it's just, it goes it's on like and safety, on. It's like, like safety, the same people are still... Safety doesn't come first anymore when it comes to flying. It's all about profit and it's incredible. Just before you go, can I talk to you quickly about sure. Concorde? Do you think we'll ever see a return of Concorde? Because, you know, I never flew on it, but it looked fascinating. It was magnificent. It was, you know, the Rolls Royce of the planes industry. Do you think we'll ever see a return of that supersonic high-speed travel? Yeah, I mean, this, there's certain things in aviation that keep coming back. It's like people are always trying to reintroduce the, the, the airship. People are always trying to make flying cars. <laughs> and people are, I mean, people are always talking about, like, oh, we're going to have this... There's a, they're talking about the supersonic business jet yes, lately, yeah, yeah, yeah. and like the fact of the matter is, you have massive headwinds. Mm. Speaking metaphorically, um, for supersonic travel, ma- mainly that it's it, it's it burns a lot of fuel. Yeah, and so you're get, you're looking at just right out of the gate, very high ticket costs. Mm. Um, you're looking at a very tiny potential passenger base that is very very rich and so they ha- it, so it's worth their while to spend i don't know ten fifty thousand dollars a ticket to stay mm. you know the concord used to save you what three two or three hours off your transatlantic flight new york to london so people could like do yeah you could do a talk show in new york and a talk show in london on the same day just fly back and forth in the concord i mean incredible it's if only... somebody's time is worth that much my time is not worth that much money. <laughs> the number of so the question your question gets down to how many people in the world um, their time is worth that much money. Maybe Ryan Seacrest, maybe. Um, and just yeah, before, exactly. Just, just before you go, you are the host of a successful podcast, MH370. Right. What an incredible story! Obviously, lives were lost. Um, 
will we ever find out what really happened to that disappearing flight? The point, so the podcast is called Deep Dive MH370. And the point that I want to get across is that this is a mystery unlike any other aviation It's like a fairy, well, not a fairy ever. tale, but yeah. Every, the, it, it's like a Swiss watch. It's so technically complicated. It, has so, it involves everything from um, marine biology to orbital dynamics. And the closer you look, there's, the thing about it is when you look at the evidence, things mm. that happened, the evidence itself is so strange. Yeah. Uh, Planes don't just you, drop out so, of the so air. They don't drop out of the air. No. They didn't. This one, this one didn't even just disappear either. It, it was a six-hour process of turning, disappearing, re-emerging. It wasn't following the flight again. path. It, actually, it disappeared three times, and so and so people say, "Well, well are we ever going to find it?" Before we can find it, we have to understand what actually happened. And so we're basically we started doing this weekly podcast mm. where each episode we take apart one aspect of the case. Um, whether it be the satellite communication system or, this, or the, the, the drifting in the ocean of the debris. And so to really understand, it actually turns out to be a lot, in a sense, the, the range of options is much smaller than people think. Some yeah. people think there's over 12 different things that could have happened. There's yeah. actually only two possible things that could have happened. And pilot until suicide. we really achieve clarity, pilot suicide is the main one. And the other one is that we're, there seems to have been a vulnerability Hijacking. that a sophisticated hacker yeah. could have taken it. A third party could have taken it by altering the this, this, this satellite data, which it seems like this plane had a rare vulnerability. And if that's the case, that should really be opening people's eyes. But Jeff, we owe it to the families, the people that lost loved ones on that plane to find the truth of the story. And for me, it feels yeah. like people are really forgetting about MHS, you know, 370. And it's, you know, guys like yourself that, you know, bring the truth um, of what happened. Can I just ask you, before you go, what do you think happened? Sure. There's two, so the, the, the case that I make in the, in the you know, the, the process of going through these episodes of, of Deep Dive MH370 is that there are basically the plane, uh, the, the satellite data that this plane produced was either produced innocently mm. in the normal process of, of the way that the equipment operated, or it was tampered with. If the, if, the, if the data was not tampered with, then the plane went into the Southern Indian Ocean. And the, and, and the question of why the wreckage hasn't been found on the seafloor is a very difficult one to wrestle with. There's no black the alternative box. is that they, the black box has not been found. They, ser they searched an area three miles deep the size of Great Britain. So and if they can't find the black box, then they, they can't really go anywhere from that. Really, you need the, that black box to score the information. Well, yeah, not only the black box, but the entire rest of the wreckage. A few pieces were found on, on places in the western part of the Indian Ocean, but the main body of the wreckage, the, the fuselage, the planes, the engine, um, the wings, those have never been located, and that is deeply, deeply problematic. It's one of many deeply problematic aspects of this case that people should really be scratching their heads and think this is a very strange case. Do you think it was pilot but suicide or something happened. else? I think that I think we really need to start taking seriously the possibility now, the possibility that there was a vulnerability that was exploited by by essentially hackers. A government. There was a way that this data. Well, it would have to be a state-level hacker. And if, and if the data was hacked, then the plane went north to Kazakhstan. God. And so who 
And so who, who would be operating in Kazakhstan? Well, you know that four and a half months after this plane was taken, the, um, the military intelligence of, the, of Russia shot down one of its 16 sister planes in, in the Malaysian airline. Yeah. And so, we, so we, if you ask who was in the business of destroying Malaysian Airlines 777s in 2014, well, the only actor that we know was in that business was Russia, and specifically the GRU, the military intelligence. Jeff. Now, why they were doing this is a whole nother story. Whole nother story. But this is a deep, deep, fascinating case. Like I said, it's a Swiss watch. You really have to take it, to open the case and look at the gears to figure out what, what to make of it. Jeff, appreciate your time. Thank you very much for that insightful conversation. We'll be speaking to you soon. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much for all of that. Anytime. That was Jeff Wise. Jeff, thank you very much for your time. You're a journalist, author, and co-host of the amazing Deep Dive MHS 370 podcast. I highly recommend. Well, I want to thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the Memo podcast. This week, you can listen to the Memo wherever you get your podcast. We will be back next week.